I'll be reading Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 9. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against these nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in, the day, in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at even time, evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea, and summer and winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and their day, and that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. You may be seated. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Those words from the New Testament, book of Revelation, chapter 19, speaking of the return of Christ to this planet one of these days. Well, I've chosen to speak on Zechariah 14 today, and maybe you guessed that one reason for that was that it mentions, and the events here are on the Mount of Olives especially, mentioned in verse 4. You might remember that I've been preaching about of significant events that happen on mountaintops, and this is the seventh time that I'm doing that, and I think the last time in that series of events and people of that individuals that oh, learned and grew because of God dealing with them on mountains. And the aim for that, and the aim for that is that we here today, individually and as a group, would also understand better and learn and grow to submit to God and his will for us like these various ones did in the long ago. 
um, God reveals himself to us. Maybe in little different ways than in Bible times, but through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we want to be open to that. Yep, even here today, do we not? So this mountain and this event is unique in that it still hasn't happened, you know. The, the other six that we thought about together are events that happened in the past, and the Bible tells us about them. This one, uh, the Bible gives us a preview of something that is yet to happen, a great, great climax event still to happen. Uh, the title, What's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? What's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? And you might remember that last time, uh, the subject also was the Mount of Olives. But that was when Jesus was suffering just before his death. And when he was submitting himself to the Lord, um, to God and his will. As we look at Zechariah 14, we really don't notice that submission, do we? But we certainly see his power and his sovereignty and his all-powerful strength and that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. And we say, do we not? Even so come, Lord Jesus. In many ways, um, Zechariah 14 is a climax of the book of Zechariah. It's the last chapter. It's the climatic chapter. And also it's, in a way, it's a climax of Old Testament revelation. Speaking about that future event, the return of the Lord Jesus to planet Earth. There's a magazine called Ag Aviation's Update, and I quote from them on the subject of the return of the Lord Jesus. There are over 1,500 Old Testament passages of Scripture that refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are 330 verses of Scripture in the New Testament, or about one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament, that directly refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ refers to his second coming on this earth 21 times, and over 50 times we are exhorted to be ready for Jesus' return to this earth. The second coming to the earth is a major theme throughout the Old and New Testament. Only the subject of faith is mentioned more times in the Bible than the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. For every time the first coming of Jesus is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming, his second coming, to this earth is mentioned eight times, end of quote. Oh, I thought that was just pretty interesting. Yeah, one of the th great themes of the Bible is the climax of human history, the return of Jesus Christ when he will be setting everything right. I think it's kind of neat that we're studying about the beginning in our Sunday school, the beginning of the world, and the sermon today on the subject of the coming of Christ and the end of the world as we know it. And, I, and Nate Bang's devotional today, this morning, was, I think, about the present and how we are to do, especially as fathers, past, present, future.
we will pretty much confine ourselves, I think, to just three passages here today. Certainly the text passage of Zechariah 14. And I read already from Revelation 19. And then we'll think, uh, hopefully think a little bit about the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 as well. The last verses there in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now there's many other passages like we just read in that quote. Um, and these aren't, so these aren't the only ones, but just um, we can't in 45 minutes go everywhere and say everything and notice everything. So let's try to stay pretty much with those three. As we look at Zechariah 14, and I'm just guessing that you might want to keep a finger or a bookmark at these other two, especially Revelation 19 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and flip back and forth as you do your study, even as we think together on this subject. Zechariah 14, I see two contrasting angles or themes here. And one of them is, um, is some goriness. We're, let's think together about the gory part of chapter 14. And I say that carefully, uh, but there's some things here um, in the verses that Dave read, as well as later in the chapter, that are just fairly gruesome and bloody and despairing of. Um, not tremendously good conversation for living room or maybe even for a sermon. The gory parts. And we'll especially notice verses 1 and 2 as we think about that. So we're gathering from different passages, and we know from various passages in the Bible that Israel, we think we know, I should say, that this time frame is about at the end of the seven-year tribulation after the rapture of the church. And maybe some of you are thinking, maybe you're thinking about um, the series that Joseph Peachy had in the last oh, couple years on eschatology, end-time events. So we think that it's about at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and Israel, Israel especially, uh, uh, certainly is at its wit's end here, verses 1 and 2. And I would just mention for your consideration and exp just to explain that Israel, the nation of Israel, is in view in Zechariah 14. Not so much the church, although there's all kinds of lessons for us as the church, certainly, but what's in it really in view is the nation of Israel. And they are up against it here. Now, for the Jewish nation, that's not tremendously unusual. They've had lots and lots of suffering and persecution in, for many, many years. But this is worse than ever, Zechariah 14. They are at 
the end of their rope, at their wit's end. This is the Bible, I think it's right to say that the Bible would call this the time of Jacob's trouble. And enemy forces are overwhelmingly superior and really unstoppable as they come against the nation of Israel at the, during the Great Tribulation. And this is, we often talk about this as the Battle of Armageddon. As I think of all that, uh, just as an aside, I think of Moshe Dayan. Um, 55 years and 12 days ago, Israel liberated the nation of um, the city of Jerusalem. And he said that day, Mr. Diane said that day, we have returned to our holiest of holy places, never to, le uh, never to leave it or to lose it, something like that. Uh, he might have been wrong there, according to what we see in Zechariah 14. So this is the culmination of Persecution against the Jewish nation. Some of you were living in the 1940s, late 30s and early 40s, uh, when Hitler's Holocaust in Europe took place. And think of Pharaoh in Egypt, and Haman, and think of Herod, and plenty of other people who opposed and persecuted and tried to annihilate the Jewish nation. Think of the pogroms in Russia and Eastern Europe all in the last 100 years, 150 years, and so on. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what mankind, especially Gentile nations and powers, have done against God's chosen people. And I think there's two reasons for this very unreasonable bitter, terrible hatred that many God, that godless people have against the Jewish race. And one reason is, remember what they said at Jesus' trial. Remember? He, they said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. I think that's one reason why the Jewish nation suffers. And I remember how that, in the sword and trumpet long ago, Audrey Shank wrote, in response to that, his blood be upon us and upon our children, she wrote, uh, these are some of the most fearful words ever spoken. Because of them, the world has been red with, the earth has been red with Jewish blood, and the end is not yet. I think that's one good, that's one reason. A second reason is given in Genesis 3.15, and you remember that because we had that in Sunday school just a few weeks ago. The conflict of, of her, of the woman's seed against the serpent's seed. Satan, um, to win, needs to rid the world of the human race, and he has tried so often in so many ways, and will be trying yet again. Two reasons. Well, let's look at just uh, the few verses here, and a couple of phrases and thoughts from Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Thy spoil. Interesting, I think it is, that here is this great conflict. And John MacArthur speaks of, well, speaks of 
how, and quoting various Bible verses and passages, talks about how that the, the Bible says here, I will gather all nations, verse 2. And Mr. MacArthur says that they come from the north, Russia, and from the west, the Antichrist, and from the east, Red China, and from the south, all four directions. All the armies of the world um, deploy toward that one spot in the world, the nation of Israel. And they, remember, it's unstoppable, overwhelmingly superior, these armies, against one little, one little nation, the nation of Israel, and there's really no contest. And they take over, just like we see that in the first verses here. Thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Thy spoil. Uh, Mr. MacArthur also says, I thought it was uh, interesting, that he says that, how would we know, you know, but he says that that's very untypical for armies to sift through the spoils on location. But generally, invading armies defeat the enemy, grab the spoils, and hurry home as fast as they can before before there's any more battles, that kind of thing. But why do they work on the spoil? Oh, they just hunker down there in Jerusalem. That's what it looks like to me, doesn't it, to you? Thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Why is that? That's because they are so confident that they have won a great victory over Israel and, and they are complacent. The victory has been won, or so they think. I think it's interesting that God says in verse 2, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. In all of this, even though man thinks that he is in charge and is in control and has the victory, godless man. I think of what Gid Stolzfus used to say, talk, uh, talking about... Um, I can't get it together right now. God, um, Christ rejecting, God defying Christ rejecting people, he used to say. I remember that from years ago. God defying Christ rejecting, that personifies these people here in the first verses of Zechariah 14. God gathers these people together. God is overruling. God is in control. God's overarching power and authority and plan is continuing apace here. Remember that it says in Psalm 2 that the God in the heavens will laugh at puny man who thinks that he has the world by the tail. And I think that prophecy especially is fulfilled at this very time. God in the heavens will laugh. God has brought them here. God has brought these godless armies here to try to take Jerusalem and for all appearances has won the victory. Unbeknown to the attackers, they're not there of their own sakes, number one, and they're not even there because of Satan's as Satan's emissaries, they're there because God has called them there so that he can wreak vengeance and justice 
on them. I will gather, I think is a pivotal phrase there in verse 2. And then we're talking about the goriness, the gruesomeness. It talks about the city being taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and people going into captivity. They take all kinds of POWs. And it's at that point that the Lord goes forth and fights against those nations. Verse 3, as when he fought in the day of battle. And as, as I... We remember, do we not, together. We remember, do we not, that there are dire consequences for anti-God behavior and attitudes and actions. These God-defying, Christ-rejecting people face the consequences. Do they ever, when Jesus descends from heaven and takes care of things? There's just dire consequences for all who stand against God in every way. That includes people in the past. There's all kinds of stories in the Old Testament and in the Bible about how people suffered for being against God. It's going to happen some more. And we know that from our own experience. We, can, we look around and we can easily see that in many ways. When people choose to stand against God, when they choose to rebel and disobey our just and sovereign and almighty Lord, there's consequences even here on earth and especially in the future in hell. So, we've thought about some of the gruesomeness, the goriness. Let's change gears now and think about the other side that is also clearly delineated here in Zechariah 14, and that's the glory. First the glory, but now let's talk about the glory. Verses 3 to 5, and 9 to 11, and other verses here. The Lord returns, he goes and fights against those nations, and this is not the first time that God fights for Israel. The, again, the Old Testament is replete with stories where faithful, obedient Israel had as their protector God, the God of heaven. He goes forth and fights. He is often called in the Bible. In fact, I noticed this morning that 235 times the God of heaven is called the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. And that just simply means the Lord of armies. Now this Lord of armies has asked his children to be non-resistance and to love their enemies but he is sovereign, and I think it is no, uh, I think it's easy for us to understand how that God is a warrior, and he asks us to be opposite that, uh, and to be love our enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. But that doesn't say, but God is answerable to no one, and he is just and perfect and right in all his ways. Never, I think I'm right to say that never has there been such a one-sided battle as happens here when Jesus comes to earth at the very height of Israel's greatest, uh, worst time and when their all hope is gone. Jesus comes, he goes and fights, and 
Well, we were talking about consequences just a minute ago. Notice the consequence of these ungodly, God-defying, Christ-rejecting armies. Look at the consequence in verse 12. And that's just an earthly consequence. There are eternal consequences in hell also, and especially, and beyond this. But verse 12 is just pretty gruesome all by itself. It kind of reminds us of maybe a nuclear uh, attack or something like that, just for a guess. His feet shall stand, verse 4 says, upon the Mount of Olives. And it's easy if well, as we think about that, his feet shall stand on the mount of, upon the Mount of Olives. Then my thoughts go to Acts 1, and I'm guessing yours might too, where it says, it talks about, as ye have seen him go, that's how he's going to come again. And I think at least some of what that mean, would mean is that God, or Jesus, physically and bodily and personally ascended to heaven. And one of these days, Physically and bodily and personally, he will descend at that same spot on the Mount of Olives. As you have seen him go, and I can easily picture, and I'm guessing that you can do that in your mind's eye, that as he descends majestically and slowly, uh, every eye shall see him, the Bible says. Uh, as, and as he touches down and his feet hit the Mount of Olives, all of a sudden there's an earthquake and the Mount of Olives cleaves in the middle, just like verse 4 talks about. And that brings me to, as I think of that, that brings me to a problem that I have uh, in between Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19, because Revelation 19 says that Jesus will come from heaven on a white horse. Now, how can his feet touch the Mount of Olives, like Zechariah 14 says, and yet he come down on a white horse, as Revelation 19 says? Well, I know that it's only a problem because I am too finite and because I have such limited ability to understand. There's a lot that we don't understand and we thank God for what he has revealed. He wouldn't have to tell us anything, but he has told us so much in his word and everything that we need to know. And so we just let that problem to God, don't we? We can see other problems in Scripture like that, problems of our own making, because we are not God. We are so finite and so limited. And I'm just real happy to let that to God because I know that he can take care of that issue, that problem. He can, he's able to take care of that. He's well able, very, very well able and quite very well able and he will take care of that in due time, and I would just suspect that we will look on that and say, oh, now we understand. 
Isn't it wonderful how God, in the midst of Israel's despair and hopelessness, when, God, when Jesus returns to earth on the Mount of Olives, what's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? When he does that, that God in a very creative, or Jesus in a very creative, effective, surprising way, makes a way of escape. And all of a sudden, there's a valley, and people, say, people that have been there say that the Mount of Olives just to the east of Jerusalem is a major um, a problem to escape. You kind of got to go around one way or the other, I think. But God makes a way of escape here so that the folks are able to escape out of Jerusalem and get away. Are you thinking about 1 Corinthians 10.13 as I am when I think about that? 1 Corinthians 10.13 say, God, maybe I need to turn to it. Keep me. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Different subject, right? Uh, we're talking about Israel and their physical need uh, for escape. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 is talking about our, our need for a spiritual escape. God provides each one, both physically for Israel and thank the Lord he does that for us. 1 Corinthians 10.13. And then there's that earthquake that produces the new escape route. And I was surprised to read in Wikipedia, I was surprised and real happy to read this. Follow along if you can uh, from Wikipedia um, Encyclopedia. Creationist Geologist Stephen A. Austin suggested in 2000 that widely separated archaeological excavations in the countries of Israel and Jordan contain architectural bearing, architecture bearing damage from a great earthquake. Earthquake debris at six sites is tightly confined uh, stratigraphically to the middle of the 8th century B.C. And I just stop there to say that that was about exactly Uzziah's time. Uh, going back to Wikipedia, excavations by archaeologist Yigal Yadin revealed southward tilted walls, inclined pillars, and collapsed houses in even some of the strongest architecture, arguing that the earthquake waves were propagated from the north. The excavation in the city of Gezer revealed severe earthquake damage. The outer wall of the city shows hewn stones weighing tons that have been cracked and displaced several inches off their foundation. The lower part of the wall was displaced outward, away from the city, whereas the geologists studying layers of sediment on the floor of the dead... I'm sorry, whereas the upper part of the wall fell inward toward the city, still lying course on course, indicating the sudden collapse of the wall. A report in 2019 by geologists studying layers of sediment on the floor of the Dead Sea further confirmed 
confirmed this particular seismic event. Did you get that? I don't understand near all of that myself, but it's interesting that um, geologist Mr. Austin, who is a Christian, uh, Yigal Yadin, who was a Jewish man, and then in 2019, other geologists. So three groups kind of all say the same thing here, verifying the truth of this earthquake that the Bible speaks about in Zechariah 14.5. To me, that's just so interesting. And just another example of how archaeology validates the truth of Scripture in so many ways. So, we've talked about Zechariah 14 a little bit here. We've talked about the goriness, and we've talked about the glory part. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, which will it be for you? Which will it be for me? Um, the Bible tenor often is first the cross and then the crown, isn't it? First the goriness, then the glory. These ungodly people, these godless armies, they, the opposite was their case, right? God is calling us as his people, God is calling us here today to stand for truth and with God and being willing to suffer and that suffering being more than worth it because of Christ Jesus and his glory that he brings to our, into our experience, even now, but especially then. Just this week, um, Ray Pritchard said, and it, can I say it just right? He said that the, the road to the promised land leads through the desert. There is no other road that takes you there. I think maybe he's on to something there. So the call for the sermon today, what's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? Well, there's a lot to be happening when Jesus comes again in great power and authority. King of kings and Lord of lords. He'll be king of all the earth in that day. There'll be one Lord and his name one. But even yet today, we need to be asking ourselves, whose side am I on in this titanic struggle and conflict. Whose side am I on? What's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? I'd like to change gears just a little bit now and talk just a bit about Zechariah 14 and compare it to a passage, the First Thessalonians 4 passage. And again, you might just want to turn to Zechariah, uh, to First Thessalonians 4 and have both Zechariah 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 ready to look. It's not so much a comparison as it is a contrast. And the reason for contrasting these two is just to show, try to show, that there's a lot of differences between the two. And I am rather convinced myself that 1 Thessalonians 4 is a different event 
than Zechariah 14. And 1 Thessalonians 4, it seems quite clear to me, is speaking of the rapture of the church just before the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, whereas Zechariah 14, the events here are speaking of the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes in great power and glory. So again, what I'm trying to convey is that these two events, 1 Thessalonians, the, one, the events of 1 Thessalonians 4 happens seven years between, before Zechariah 14. And let's just, as we can do just a little comparison here, let's just look at the where, the who, the when, and the why. Zechariah 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. The where, where... Let's try to look at the where parts. Where is Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4? Which again, I'm proposing, in my mind, would happen seven years before Zechariah 14. Where is Jesus there? Well, he'll descend from heaven with a shout, verse 16. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. It looks, doesn't it? It looks to me as if Jesus doesn't touch the earth, but we, the dead in Christ and those who are still alive at that point, meet between earth and heaven. Do you get that picture? We to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now in Zechariah 14, we have already talked quite a bit at some length about how Jesus comes down to earth on the Mount of Olives and proceeds from there. So that's the where, and to me there's a big contrast there. I don't think those two are the same event, but two different events. Zechariah 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4. We also can look about the who. Who is taken? In, Zechariah, um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, who is the who? Who is taken? Well, it's the church, the Christians, of course. And who is taken in Zechariah 14? It's the ungodly that are taken away. How about the when? And we look at other uh, Bible verses here, too. When does Jesus come? Well, the Bible keeps saying in the New Testament how that the return of Christ is imminent, and it could happen any time. And certainly that's the foundation of our Christian faith, isn't it? That Jesus could come any time. He could come yet today. He could come before this, ser this sermon is over. Imminent. Any time. And yet, the Bible also talks about some things that need to happen first, like Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that the man of sin must be revealed. And if we use this line of reasoning, that makes a lot of sense. If we 
put these two together as one event, then we have lots of problems. So the where, the who, the when. And then the why. Why does God appear as he does in 1 Thessalonians 4 as contrasted to Zechariah 14? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's an act of mercy and deliverance for his people. Isn't that wonderful? Thank God. And obviously, the appearing in Zechariah 14 is to also for mercy to Israel, but especially judgment against God defying Christ rejecting humanity. Just a quick little contrast that is helpful to me. The where, the who, the when, and the why. So as we come to the end of this sermon, what's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? One of these days, Jesus will return in great power and glory. In the meantime, he will have taken care of his children in mercy and deliverance. I think it's so wonderful that we can just trust God. There's a lot about Zechariah 14 that I don't understand at all. That is more than I can grasp. We only touched the surface of a few little things here. And the Bible is that way in general, but thank God that we can trust him until that day when he comes to take us home. What's to be happening on the Mount of Olives? Jesus is coming again. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Will you bow, will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one all-powerful, almighty, sovereign, good, heaven, merciful Heavenly Father, and that you have arranged for us. In your mercy, you are delivering us, and you will yet deliver us, Thank you that the return of Christ, it's the blessed hope of the Christian, and we pray even so come, Lord Jesus. Till that day, I pray that we could be faithful before you in godliness and honesty and in love for you and for each other. Thank you for your word, the Bible, for all that it reveals about the past and the present, and the future, Heavenly Father. We can trust you, and we love you, Heavenly Father, and pray again, even so come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.